hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Many of you following the pandemic, no matter where you fall on sides of various issues, have to take notice of how human behavior has changed over the last three years. Many of those who have been agitated about uh, lockdowns and social distancing, testing, masking, and vaccines wonder why so many of their relatives and people in their Bible studies and church and school and work groups, why so many seem to have blinders on? Why so many seem to be in a trance-like state? Well, to fill this void of knowledge, Professor of Psychology Matthias Desmet at the University of Ghent in Belgium uh, published a book called The Psychology of Totalitarianism, now out on a documentary by uh, Hedwind. And in it, he gets a chance to explain his theory. And he believes that so many of the conditions came together at the right time for a large segment of the population in the world to fall into a trance-like state. And that trance-like state changed so many aspects of their behavior. And it was driven out of having things uh, taken away from them in periods of long social isolation, constant free-floating anxiety, and then to have uh, answers given from uh, positions of authority, whether they be uh, federal or state agencies, health systems, doctors, that everything came together for some people to fall in a almost like a hypnotic trance-like state. Now, Desmond has been criticized by others that say, wait a minute, if, if we simply state that people have fallen into a trance-like state and they're in mass formation, then this is just a naturally occurring human phenomenon. It, in a sense, absolves anybody who could have been capitalizing on this, any potential perpetrator or uh, nefarious intent of any organization. Well, best-selling author John Leake and myself in the book Courage to Face COVID-19, we outline a, a group of perpetrators, a syndicate, if you will, the biopharmaceutical complex. And in that, we do, we do indicate that, in fact, a psychological operation is being conducted. Peter Bregan in uh, COVID-19 in the Global Prayers, We Are the Prey, outlines that there are pandemic planning preparedness events uh, documented and filmed that outline that a psychological operation will be done and it gives the methods on how it will be done, particularly on how to corral the world's population into mass vaccination. I think that's the, uh, the most injurious and serious of all the outcomes of, of mass formation, repetitive injections of genetic material over and over again no matter what the safety outcomes are. Now, there's always academic debate when we're trying to describe novel human phenomenon. Desmond will point out that this has been described in the past, multiple examples through history, including World War II and the propaganda campaign waged by Nazi Germany. 
and that this isn't new at all. In fact, humans do have this tendency to fall into this. But I wanted to give Matthias Desmond, professor of psychology at the University of Ghent in Belgium, a chance. And there's an opportunity in his documentary, which is really well filmed. He uh, is going through a variety of scenes in nature with an interviewer. And Desmond gets to explain his side of what is mass formation, in parentheses, psychosis, and how is this happening with COVID-19. Let's listen in uh, to Professor of Psychology, Matthias Desmond, in the University of Ghent in Belgium. Matthias, we're here in a stunning, beautifully nature. Do you love nature? Is it necessary for you to be in nature? It's very important. It makes me aware of uh, the fact that I belong to uh, an overarching system. Maybe system is not the right word. Maybe it's better to, to speak about an organism or, in any case, something alive. You're part of something that is bigger than us. And as a, as a human being, you're not meant to to live in a disconnected way. And nature is humbling, isn't it? Nature is humbling, yes. It can make you feel small, or at least it can make you feel aware of, of of the right proportions in life, yes. Let's recapitulate on uh, mass formation. What is mass formation? Uh, Mass formation is a very specific kind of group formation, which has very specific effects at the level of individual mental functioning. For instance, when someone is in the grip of a a process of mass formation, of this specific group formation, then he he or she becomes radically blind for uh, everything that goes against uh, the beliefs of the group. So, um, and, and the second very important characteristic of mass formation is that it makes people willing to radically sacrifice everything that used to be important for them before the mass formation. It is as if people are no longer aware of their own individual egoistic interest. Uh, and then a third, also very important characteristic, is that people who are in the grip of mass formation typically become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. And this can go quite far. In the end... It sounds familiar. Yes, and in the end they will typically stigmatize everyone who doesn't go along with them and ultimately commit cruelties to everyone who is not in the mass and they do so as if it is an ethical duty to do so. It's very characteristic for mass formation. Uh, This kind of group formation uh, only occurs under very specific conditions. And for instance, just before the corona crisis, this was definitely the case. Over 30% of the uh, population worldwide reported not to have one single uh, close contact. And then once people feel disconnected, um, they will typically start to be confronted with experiences of lack of meaning making. Mm. It will be as if their life is without purpose. 60% of the people worldwide reported uh, that they considered their job to be completely meaningless. Yeah. So that, that, uh, oh, the bullshit jobs. The, bu- the so-called bullshit jobs, yes. yes. And once people feel socially disconnected and or confronted with experiences of a lack of meaning making, something specific happens at the affective level, mm-hmm. they will typically experience so-called free-floating uh, anxiety, frustration and aggression. Meaning a kind of anxiety, frustration and aggression in which someone doesn't know 
what he feel anxious, frustrated and aggressive for, which is a very aversive mental state. Because if you feel anxious, you don't know why you feel anxious. You don't if you're attacked by a lion, you know why you're, yeah, yes, why yes. you're afraid. Yes, and you can <laughs> consider strategies yeah. to run away from yeah. the lion. Yeah. But if you don't know what you're anxious for, then you, then you feel completely out of control. Yeah. Then all this freely floating anxiety might suddenly connect to the object of anxiety in the narrative, and there might be a huge willingness to participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, no matter how absurd this narrative okay. might be. And in the next step, something even more important happens. A new kind of social bond emerges, because many people participate uh, in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. At the same time, there is like a collective heroic battle with the object of anxiety, and people feel connected okay, again. Yeah. And it's exactly that was the, the root cause of, of the of the mass formation was exactly the state of disconnectedness. So, you, instance, the, so you can get a sense of what um, Desmond is saying. He's saying that really there's no limit here. That once people fall into the mass formation, that's stunning how many people felt they had no close connections, that their work was meaningless. They were basically set up for something like this, some type of disaster that uh, indeed was unfolding in front of them. And that when they come into the formation, that in fact, there is um, a sense that they will do everything to make this happen. And the, the object of the formation clearly at this point in time is mass vaccination. And what he indicates is that in fact, you know, there's no limit to where people will go with this, how far they will go with this. The, uh, we see this with censorship and people losing their jobs over vaccination and losing school opportunities and on and on and on. And what Desmond is suggesting is that those who are in positions of authority must be in the formation in order to have a vaccine mandate, in order to put forward uh, some form of um, masking uh, rule and on and on and on. Others would say, wait a minute, not everybody can be in the mass formation. Maybe there's something simpler than that. I've pointed out over and over again that the COVID Community core funding uh, from the HHS and the Department of Defense, $13 billion that went out, that that went a long way, that when various organizations received money from the federal government to push the vaccine narrative, indeed they did so. I mean, this wasn't really uh, hard to figure out that, in fact, uh, follow the money, and indeed it really happened. Um, so no matter where you fall on this, uh, chances are you're like me. You'll be eclectic. You'll realize that there are some things that Matthias Desmond says, some observations in this theory of mass formation psychosis that really do hold together. Boy, I've certainly seen doctors, other people, other walks of life uh, that are clearly in the mass formation. They're, they're in it. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I've also seen just a tremendous amount of evidence of nefarious activity, and there is simply no end to this. Many of you have seen the viral videos that Project uh, Veritas put out on uh, Dr. Jordan uh, Tristan Lee Walker, who is a research and development director for Pfizer. And what happened there is Project Veritas, led um, by James O'Keefe, had set up a, a honey trap. Uh, in this case, um, Dr. Walker is a homosexual, so the uh, 
um, the trap or the sting is with a male um, model, and uh, they go on a series of dates, and then Dr. Walker starts to reveal secrets about what's going on in research and development meetings for Pfizer, including the bombshell of what's described as directed evolution, that Pfizer would actually begin to manipulate the genetic code for variants in order to anticipate future variants and then have vaccines that would address them. Uh, the concern here, and, and it's um, questioned by the, the model who Dr. Walker goes out with is, is that isn't this dangerous? Isn't it dangerous to be playing with already a pathogenic virus and that in fact, um, if it got out or, uh, or if it just be, became another one of the variants or became a dominant variant, that this could be bad for humanity. And, and the response to Walker, Fry Walker was, well, yeah, it's bad for humanity, uh, but it's good for Pfizer. And this went absolutely viral. When Dr. Walker re understood that he had been stung by Project Veritas, he went ballistic with James O'Keefe. You can see the videos online. Um, there was uh, basically a fracas inside what looks like a closed restaurant. Then Walker goes outside. Uh, it, you know, this has generated letters by Senator uh, Marco Rubio to Albert Burla, the CEO of Pfizer, from uh, U.S. Congressman from Texas, Ronnie Jackson, also uh, over to Pfizer uh, to explain this. What's going on? Is Pfizer really contemplating uh, what appears to be uh, a, a nefarious uh, gain-of-function research to make the virus more injurious and then try to come up with vaccines to face it. So the news cycle is absolutely popping with news on this. Now, Tucker Carlson tonight covered the story. None, none of the other major, major media covered it. Um, but uh, clearly, I think everybody should look at those videos. It, it, they're really better to watch, so I'm not going to give you any audio from them, but they're better to watch and have you get a sense of, of what went on when a young doctor becomes stung. And I researched uh, Dr. Walker. It turns out he went to undergrad at Yale. He took a year off. He went to University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas. We saw his graduation announcement. I went there as well. He graduated in 2018. He takes an internship in urology, or I guess a general internship before he goes into a surgical urologic uh, residency. and doesn't get too far. And before you know it, he's working uh, for Boston Consultants and then Pfizer, and then he's off in the world of vaccine research and development without really having any scientific background in vaccines. Well, we have a terrific show for you. The, the backside of this, I have absolutely dedicated to a breaking interview that I had with Dr. Mark Skidmore, who is an endowed chair and professor of economics at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, uh, a renowned U.S. state uh, institution. And Dr. Skidmore uh, is uh, uh, diverse across agriculture, economics, other forms of, of technologies and areas of endeavor. And he attempted to address the issue of, of what society knows about the vaccines. What do people know about them? How do they influence their decision-making and taking in vaccines? And what do they understand about vaccine safety? And it was a survey that was carried out through 2021. And he uh, came up with some shocking conclusions based on what people told him in terms of the risks of COVID-19 vaccine, particularly death. And, and I think the shocking understanding 
is that people know other people who they think have died due to COVID-19 vaccination, and it comes out in the survey, and it really is mind-blowing in terms of the numbers of estimated Americans who have died through 2021. This is just the first year of the pandemic, and I can tell you, Dr. Skidmore's work, the U.S. CDC VAERS work with an underreporting estimate, the um, the work by Columbia University, Dr. Pantazakos and Seligman, and the Zogby survey, I think are all cohesive in that that number could be 250,000 Americans lost in the first year of the pandemic, maybe more in the second year. So let's get to it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. You know, for me as a doctor, the recommendations I make to my patients are always around each and every individual person who's in front of me. And I recommend a variety of different products. Today, I saw a young man. He's in his early 20s. He is going to school full time. He's working full time. He was in the room with his mom. He looked tired. And I can tell you, he is truly burning the candle at both ends. And what he really looked like, he looked like he lacked focus and energy. And what product did I recommend to him? Healthy Cell. Healthy Cell, focus and memory, really helps when people need it, especially students. And I've tried it myself, and I use it frequently. Make sure you use it in the morning. It's slightly stimulatory, but I can tell you this really helps get at least my mind, and I think his mind, in the right framework, the right activation. It has a, a variety of nutraceuticals and supplements that go well in combination, and it's rapid acting as he's getting off to school or work in the morning. Think of healthy cell, focus and memory, not just for senior citizens and those with uh, at risk for cognitive decline, but also students like this one, burning the candle at both ends. So go to our website, uh, America Out Loud Talk Radio, and go to the banner bar, click on Healthy Cell, and then when you get there, make sure if you need it, use the promo code OUTLOUD to get 20% off your first purchase. Healthy Cell, focus and memory. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. All right. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the povidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the CofixRx banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD.
here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com, seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I have a breaking interview, and I mean breaking because a manuscript has just been published in the peer-reviewed literature. It's very impactful. It's uh, be trending on Twitter. And I have the author here to explain the paper. It's a very creative paper. And the author is Dr. Mark Skidmore. Dr. Skidmore is uh, a professor of economics and an endowed chair. Uh, in involves uh, His work involves policy, economics. He's at Michigan State University, which is one of the you know, top state universities in the United States. I, I did, went to graduate school at University of Michigan, so I know the, you know, the great quality of both Michigan and Michigan State as, as probably two of the finest state universities in the United States. And I've asked Dr. Skidmore to come on the program uh, and explain his paper. And, um, and this is to a lay public, although a lot of doctors and nurses uh, follow and listen to this program. Uh, and, and with the idea that, you know, our audience includes uh, Canada, Europe, South Africa, Australia, and the United States. The role of the paper is, uh, I mean, the title of the paper is The Role of Social Circle COVID-19 Illness and Vaccination Experiences in COVID-19 Vaccination Decisions, an online survey of the United States population. And this was published in BMC Infectious Diseases uh, in uh, just recently in 2023. Dr. Skidmore, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk about the research and um, looking forward to it. Well, why don't you take it away in terms of what uh, what motivated you to, to do the project and then and get into the, the role of, of how uh, survey data uh, can lead to important uh, inferences in terms of what's going on in population health? Sure. Uh, I, I think it all started because, you know, I had a, an opportunity to sit in with a group called Doctors for COVID Ethics, and they had expressed these concerns about this type of vaccines. And we began to see some of the, the negative consequences of that, along with a lot of other um, physicians, including you. Um, and um, but we didn't really have a good sense of how many people were um, dying and getting injured, and there was a lot of non-transparency in the government data and underreporting. It appeared um, so a survey could at least shed some light and give us some ballpark of how many people may have died and may have been severely injured by the vaccine. Um, in addition to that, because I had a chance to listen to people like you and uh, others, um, I had a sense of what to look for in an injury. And so around me, I, I, you know, I have family member who had a neurological issue after getting vaccinated. A friend um, got pericarditis. A, another person had a stroke. A, a colleague had a blood clot in his leg. And, you know, and I, I just, I'm seeing the train wreck unfold. And 
so that was the motivation for um, doing this survey and shedding some light on trying to shed some light on this and and, and surveys are actually used a lot um, for a, a variety of purposes and including health um, but we have to realize that that what what we're getting from this are impressions of uh, the injuries that can occur um, in this case with uh, in injuries from the the COVID vaccine it's it's useful to ask survey respondents what their own experience is but it's incomplete because if they passed away or were severely injured they're li less likely to to answer a question or be you know be you know complete a survey so the strategy in this paper is to ask um the respondent to tell us something about their friends and family um and in this case we wanted to look at what you know what happens um, when you experience somebody in your friends and family uh, say COVID, a severe COVID illness are you more or less likely to take the vaccine or what happens when you see somebody take the vaccine and they immediately start having health problems or, or they die does that affect your decision and and so that's like one part of the study is what affects vaccine vaccine uptake and do these experiences matter and they do and the second part of it is um, because we had um, enough sample we could see that a lot of people about 22 percent knew at least one person who they thought experienced a vaccine injury and so i can ask um, ask what happened to that person and they provide the background and the information we can sort through it and um and, and you know in the paper if you're not a statistician or you don't have a statistical background go to the adi additional document three and you can just see the feedback from the people but in their family or within their social network that had a vaccine impact and you can see the devastating things that happened you know and 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 sometimes it's it's pretty specific they took the vaccine and within two days they had a stroke they took the vaccine and got a blood clot and ultimately had to have a leg removed or a limb removed um they you know um and on and on so you can just go through and see what they said and i think that might be maybe the most instructive thing you could do is just look at that additional document with the feedback Maybe I'll stop there, and then we can continue if, if well, you'd like to interject. Did you, did, you, um, did you sense much ambiguity as people were re reporting it, um, or, or were they pretty clear that they, you know, that this happened? And uh, I mean, did the doctors tell them, "Well, it's due to something else," and, and they're confused, or, or, or do they have a sense no. they knew what was going on? I think uh, you know when you look at the feedback um from from the respondents it's pretty clear that they believe that the impact was because of the vaccine and many times it's very in close proximity but it doesn't mean that the vaccine caused it there appears to be a correlation temporally you know in the com comments not every comment sometimes the comments are short the person died sometimes the comments are more detailed um, um, in, in any case, um, the average age of the person who died that they knew was around 48 years old. So what we can do is ask the question on average, how many people die from a heart attack or a stroke or 
a blood clot related issue and then take out that number of people um, from the survey. And that's what I did. As I said, let's net that out um, because mm-hmm. um, you know, not, there's a chance that those people would have died in any case and just happened to be about the time that they got the vaccine. But even if you do that, it's not a number of, uh, you know, of people who might have died um, because of uh, other issues. It would just happen to be about the time that they, you know, were vaccinated. I know, but so, Mark, you know, this yeah. idea that there's 48-year-old people who have impending death walking around in the United States, uh, you know, that that's a little hard to conceive. Do you know what I mean? That that um, sure. Uh, you know, especially people who are are healthy enough to take a a vaccine. So some of these people took the vaccine during the period of time where they were mandated. So you know, they're employed people mandated to take the vaccine. It's hard to imagine that they had impending death that they took a vaccine in the setting of being forty eight and having terminal cancer. I mean, it could happen. But it, sure. would you agree that that's? I can tell you as a as a practicing doctor, that's not the first thing that would come up. I, I would think, listen, these people are healthy enough to walk into a vaccine center and get a vaccine that uh, they they certainly have years of life ahead of them. Uh, yeah. they they shouldn't be dying in, in close temporal proximity to taking the vaccine. I I very much agree with you, and the CDC data shows that as well. The the likelihood that um, a 48-year-old person would have a heart attack is really low. The average age of a, a, a first heart attack in this country is about 65. I'm, I know I'm talking to a cardiologist, so you may have a, you know, a, a better fix on that, but I think it's right around there. So the, the probability of having a heart attack, and, and a lot of the fatalities and events are, are heart-related in the survey, is it's just a very small number of people that would have had such an event. And, and, and so what I try to do is net those people out, you know, maybe a, a few of the people in the social network that we're asking about um, would have had a heart attack in any case, but you're right. It, it, it's very unlikely. And it, it, it only reduces the, the estimated fatalities by about 4% if you take out okay. the people who might have died anyway. So obviously the deaths um, had to be reported by a surrogate, someone else responding and they said they knew. But how about the injuries, the non-fatal things? Were the, Was that a direct report of someone who perceived an injury or were they also reporting on others? Yeah, so um, about actually quite a large percentage of the respondents themselves indicated that they had an impact. Um, Some of them were quite serious, heart-related, neurological stroke. Um, So there were a number of those, but a a lot of people who responded to the survey um, said, you know, I had a sore arm or I got sick for a day. It wasn't too bad. Um, So- were they reporting about themselves? Mark, were they reporting about themselves? In in that case, they're reporting about themselves. Then, then I asked them a separate question about, um, do you, you know, and we try, I try to be as neutral as I can, you know, is there somebody who experienced some sort of health condition after being vaccinated? And if so, what happened? And then 
that person is allowed to tell me what happened. And so in that case- and, and when people did this, Yeah, but when people did this online survey, uh, did they do it and, and get paid, get a, a Starbucks coffee card? Were they, was there inducements or was there something that made somebody, let's say who was, you know, had a problem with the vaccines, be more motivated to fill it out than someone who did well with the vaccine? Sure. I, I used a, a professional uh, company in online, it's, this was an online survey. So this professional company has a large cohort of Americans who complete surveys. And so they um, might be in, uh, maybe a vegetable prize or something like that, um, but they don't get a lot of money for completing these surveys or anything, you know. So there, there are some some issues there. But all of this followed the sta standard guidelines for appropriate survey take, you know, um, ad administration. And, and so and these they can, people, they can yeah, can they demonstrate that it's a representative sample? That it's a representative sample of adults in the United States? Yes. Um, the um, the sampling that I have is very very close to the, the the demographic makeup of the U.S. population, and in a few areas there are some modification, you know, some minor differences, and so we can do a weighting of the survey to make small adjustments. But I tell you that the weighting really made no difference. It, it was very close to representative of the whole population. And so in our, in my case, I have about uh, 2,840 um, observations and survey respondents that we ask these questions of, which is a pretty good sample size. It's, it's a smaller sample size, but it's large enough to give us some pretty tight confidence intervals. So we have uh, a good, you know, a degree of confidence in the results that we're getting. So does that mean that, so for instance, um, when you have a confidence interval, uh, how would you explain that to a layperson? How to interpret that? Um, we can look at the the average score the response, but also generate a confidence interval around it. And typically, we use, I would say, a ninety-five percent confidence interval. We can say we're ninety-five percent sure that we're in this range. Okay, so that's pretty solid. Well, uh, why don't you just highlight the, the major results? You've already told us some about injuries, but go ahead and, and let us know the major results. Yeah, sure. There are, there are really um, three parts to the survey. One is to learn about the experiences of the respondents regarding COVID illness and the COVID vaccine, as well as learning something about the experience of the respondents' social circles regarding COVID illness and COVID vaccine. And then we want to identify the factors that influence the vaccination decision. What factors are associated with a higher or low, lower likelihood of being vaccinated? So we collect a, on a number of, of factors such as education, income, race, um, news sources. Um, and and the, the, the value added of this study is to look specifically at how if you know somebody in your social circle that got sick after having the vaccine or had a, an adverse event, did that affect your decision to be vaccinated? And similarly, mm -hmm. if you know somebody who got very sick from COVID, did that affect your decision to be vaccinated? And um, so the standard stuff, more educated populations were more likely to be vaccinated 
higher income, more likely to be vaccinated. Minorities were less likely to be vaccinated relative to the white population. Um, if you got your news from the mainstream media or the CDC government sources, you were more likely to be vaccinated. If you looked at the alternative news sources, we left that as kind of an open interpretation of what alternative news meant. You were um, less likely to be vaccinated. If you knew somebody who got very sick from COVID, you're more likely to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And if you knew somebody who you thought experienced a, a COVID vaccine adverse event, you would be um, less likely to be vaccinated. And the importance of that effect is larger than the illness effect. So when I finished this work, I said, you know, I don't think um, people are gonna continue to be vaccinated because when they see a loved one harmed, they're they're gonna think twice before they take the shot or take a booster. So that, that, let me be clear. So that was even a stronger impact on them than having a case of severe COVID. Yes. That's okay. right. Um, and I think that's what's happening now. I, I think a lot of people are not inclined to get the booster for a variety of reasons. But I think it, one is because they, you know, a lot of people have known others who may have had a serious adverse event. And these data are showing that. Well, in, mm -hmm. in the survey, about 22% of respondents say they knew at least one person who experienced a significant or severe adverse event, like a heart attack or a heart-related problem, a stroke, um, et cetera. And, um, um, but if you look at the CDC data on VAERS deaths during this period for the United States, there were about 8,000 fatalities. CDC also says that COVID fatalities are about 840,000 people a year of, of the, um, through December of 2021. So that, that ratio of, of vaccine deaths through the vaccine adverse events reporting system to deaths from COVID is about 1%. So if that <clears throat> is reflective of reality, I, we should only see about 1% of um, vaccine deaths relative to the COVID's, um, COVID illness deaths. And so it's a nice natural test because you have about 1% of deaths per from the vaccine as a ratio of the deaths from COVID in the CDC data. Well, in the survey, we had um, about 30, that ratio was about 34, 35%, way mm. outside what you'd mm -hmm. expect if the government data were correct. So we had a huge discrepancy, and that allows us to test for um, using the survey. <clears throat> excuse me. You're able to back out an estimate if you assume the survey data were more accurate than the CDC data. <clears throat> we reject that they're similar. They're totally dissimilar. <clears throat> so who's right? Is the CDC right, or is the survey closer to being correct? <clears throat> So we use those ratios to back out a fatality estimate. And, in, and, and once we subtract out people who might have died anyway, 
There are about 278,000 fatalities in the first year of the vaccine rollout. I would also argue that not only it's not an, not only another year for fatalities to occur, but it's more time for people to talk to each other. Yeah. Remember, remember, we were emerging out of lockdowns. A lot of churches were still closed. Uh, people were, uh, you know, uh, working from home offices. People started to come to work, and they started to talk. I mean, if you're on a work Zoom, you're not going to bring up a COVID nineteen vaccine death. But if you're back at work and people are in their cubicles and you're just talking at the at the uh, you know coffee break room, it may come up in a conversation. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think that's really uh, an astute observation. I think that probably is true because we were we were asked to stay home and we worked from home and and uh, we didn't go to church and we joined by Zoom and and in that kind of uh, you know space, you you don't have a chance to talk as much and you 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 might not in a Zoom you might not say you know my brother got really sick after the vaccine. There's no space for that. But if you're sitting around, uh, you know, the coffee room, you might just talk about that. You know, that's that's so true. Now, um, I'm sure you're aware of some of these other papers, one by Pantasatos <clears throat> and Seligman that's in the preprint yeah. server system. You know, they used vaccine administration data and census data, and they try to use that method. And they did truncate their assessment of mortality, actually to the same month and year you did, December of 2021. Do you recall what number they came up with? I don't. Do you know? Yeah, let's see if I can uh, bring it up. It is uh, it is remarkably close, and I think that's the point I'm, I'm going to get to here. Uh, two completely different, completely different um, methods of trying to get to death because we just simply are not getting the, um, you know, we're not getting the yeah. uh, mortality data. I mean, if we had mortality data, we wouldn't need to do surveys and some of these, uh, you know, some of these indirect um, uh, methods. Yeah. If you had faith in the mortality data, I guess we well, have yeah, mortality you'd, you'd data, have, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. So we'd have to, you know, certainly, have um, uh, you know have a faith in it, but uh, let me see if I can uh, bring this up. Um, why don't you hit some other highlights? Yeah, of, I, well, of as long as we're talking about other other frameworks for looking at this, um, you know, some some researchers have looked at the um, VARES data, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, and um, I think there's sufficient evidence to show that that's an underreport of, of vaccine injuries and damages. Um, um, but you can make some assumptions about the ratio and come up with estimates. Um, so that's one way. I think Jessica Rose and others have done some some of this kind of work. Um, Steve Kirsch has done a lot of survey work, and and his estimate is in the ballpark of of of, of mine. Um, Edward Dowd and Josh Sterling have looked at the insurance data, as you know, um, and so there are, you know, I, I, I've learned that it's useful to triangulate, and, um, you know, so my survey is one approach. Um, the paper that you just mentioned has another approach. Um, yeah, we can I look at data. insurance data. 
Right. So this is uh, Spiro Pantazatos and Herb Solomon, uh, Columbia University, and it's um, ResearchGate. Uh, <clears throat> and it's just bringing up all-cause mortality. See, it's a little bit different because it's all-cause mortality, and it's not it's just saying it's kind of coincident with starting the, the vaccine program. Yours is different because the respondents are saying, yes, they knew they took the vaccine, and, and yes, they think they died of the vaccine. You see, you see how yours is, yeah. is, is different. But what they come up with is um, uh, the, the, the sampling frame is zero to 20 weeks post-injection. Their confidence limit for death in the same time period yours was came up at 146 to 187,000. Okay, so 146 to 180,000. So yours is uh, roughly 100,000 higher on the, on, the, on the point estimate. And, and what they give is a confidence interval. And so when we look at yours, your confidence, upper limit of the confidence interval is 332. So your confidence interval is, is nearly double the upper limit of their confidence interval. And... Um, but I think the points of these papers is um, uh, is not um, is not to to quibble on what the upper limit of the confidence limit is and the differences. It's just that these are very very large numbers. They're very yes. large numbers for a, a biopharmaceutical product. I mean, I, I would say a, a, an unacceptably large number. Uh, and so to argue, you know, hundreds of, of thousands of, of these is really an astonishing, um, uh, an astonishing uh, it, observation. So uh, I'm going to pull up the, the VAERS uh, report. I happen to have one from uh, December 31st, 2021. Now VAERS overall had, uh, this is U.S. and non-U.S. data. So we know that uh, some European countries report in. They had 21,382. And back during that time period, I was not toggling over to domestic. But as I recall, the domestic deaths are running about half, as I recall. Yeah, and, and that's what I used in my comparison was the U.S. data, which is about half of that. It was about 8,000 8, or so um, 8, during the period that I looked at. Right. So um, if we if we take eight thousand, and from FDA testimony, the, uh, David Wiseman and uh, Jessica Rose, there's about three different references. The underreporting factor for mortality is coming in at about thirty from U.S. domestic bears. So thirty times eight thousand comes up with uh, uh, two hundred and forty thousand. Yep. So, so isn't it interesting? So from VAERS, the point estimate comes up at 240,000. We've got Pentazactrios and Solomon 178, and, or 187, I'm sorry. And I'd say the midpoint of what they're reporting, let's say, is, um, uh, I would add 20. The midpoint of what they're reporting is 166. So we can say, um, Pentazatos and Solomon 166 using their methodology, which is Census and Vaccine Administration data. Uh, we have VAERS at 240, and then we have a Skidmore survey at 278. 
But yes. those are three sources of data showing the first year of the pandemic was basically catastrophic. Yes. It's catastrophic. And that that's really the conclusion. It, it is catastrophic. And um, when I finished the survey and started looking at the response, um, Peter, it was just overwhelming to think about all of the people. I just have a sampling, but I have, you know, 11 pages of vaccine injury, and many of them are very, you know, very troubling. And then you, you multiply that out, not just in the United States, but the whole world. I mean, uh, the United States represents less than 5% of all of the vaccinations globally. So um, this is wow. a catastrophic thing that's happening. It's a, it's, it's a catastrophic uh, report. Uh, we saw uh, this week a protest outside the BBC headquarters, people holding up signs, amputated people in wheelchairs. Um, and we had a, a, a just a sardonic piece in the Rolling Stones saying that they were spreading misinformation. And, and yet, you know, they're amputees and they're, they're showing what happened. They were showing the, uh, the UK yellow card data, which are concordant with theirs. And then we yes. see uh, image, images in Europe, you know, these beautiful cities in Europe, they have the bridges over the water. Instead of having art easels out with beautiful art of the, of the cityscape in Europe, uh, they're showing pictures of their loved ones that died after the vaccine. Yeah, so it's, it, it's it really, really it's it's troubling, and you, and and the hard part, and part of the reason that I wanted to write this uh, or do this work was again to show, um, and yet it doesn't seem to matter how much evidence there is, the the vaccine plan just continues to move forward and so it at the end of the day it's just going to depend on everyday people to wisen up and say i'm not going to do this anymore because it doesn't appear that our government authorities are going to make a change I, maybe i'm a little pessimistic there but th if we know this they must know this at some level and no no, no halt is, is 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 happening that's been my conclusion that uh, uh, we've seen consistent behavior. You know, the FDA, uh, they knew about the Pfizer deaths. Pfizer had 1,223 deaths within 90 days of their vaccine rolling out. That's an explosive number of deaths uh, that Pfizer took the phone calls from the family members who were panicked. It's it's in the Pfizer dossier. Yeah. That's a, That's a court-ordered document. Yeah. And it's been it's been out for public review. The FDA tried to block that for uh, for fifty five years. So the FDA knows about the deaths. It's an active cover up. We've got three sources of data. We just basically we, we have triangulated that that uh, agree, and that's the first year. There's been another year of this, and. And the vSafe data, not to, not to mention the vSafe data, that, that were about 10 million people signed up to report how they were doing after the vaccine. And that's devastating as well, and it's only revealed through a court order. Um, so you won't find the Pfizer data or um, the vSafe data on any government website. You have to go elsewhere for it. It's true. Wally, you've done incredible work with this survey. Congratulations getting over the finish line. 
in publication. Uh, uh, I, I'm going to predict, just like so many papers that are uh, they're scientifically valid, uh, but people are going to view them as damaging to the worldwide vaccine campaign. That those going to be a a vigorous attempt to put pressure on the journal to either have the editor resign or to retract the paper and break the publication contract. We've seen that over and over again. Uh, did you actually have difficulty navigating this into full publication? Uh, you know, um, it took a long time, longer than usual, to go through the review process. Um, the referees, however, were very positive and asked for a really small number of changes. Um, and then once the reviews came, I was able to revise it quickly and resubmit, and, and the journal quickly accepted it. Um, so the review period was longer, but I will say that um, the, this study has gotten a lot of attention in the social media sphere. It, it's been tweeted out to something like 15 or 16 million followers. And um, along with uh, the positives, there are some negatives. So I think the journal editor is now receiving complaints. And so they put me on notice that they're going to review the article again. And um, so we'll see what happens. I, I'm, I don't know what will happen, but if uh, history repeats itself, I, it may be re redacted. It's unprecedented. You know, once papers are published, there's publication agreements that say, listen, it can't be withdrawn unless it's scientifically invalid. And I have to provide some, uh, you know, some justification uh, for that. Yet we've seen papers uh, one after another. I, you know, D Jessica Rose and I had one fully uh, retracted from current problems of cardiology, which they said on administrative reasons, which they can't do it. They said they didn't invite the paper. We had another uh, situation where I'm a co-author with Stephanie Senoff from an, an, an MIT, and we had a mechanistic paper uh, published in, uh, I believe, Food and Toxicology Reports. Uh, there was such vitriol over that. That was just a mechanistic paper that uh -huh. uh, the editor the editor was forced to resign because of that paper. Uh, so uh, there is another paper by uh, Kostov and co colleagues, um, and it it was retracted as well. Right, Ron Kostov had had that one uh, retracted, uh, and we're finding it very difficult to publish in. You know, when I talk to younger doctors, I've done some things on social media and elsewhere. They say, Dr. McCullough, we don't even care where it's published. We just want to see the data. And so, uh, you know, I, I think the preprint server system has done a wonderful job. There are some uh, papers that um, that are not indexed in PubMed, but some journals that's still able to publish and we cite the data. I'm at the point where I simply just want it published in the public space and be able to cite it. So you did great work by getting it on the preprint server. It served that purpose. And even if it's uh, retracted, we think there's uh, there's certainly opportunities to publish uh, elsewhere and get this. It's really good work. I mean, you, you put all the formulae in there. You have the supplemental tables. And as you pointed out in the review process, they didn't find significant threats to validity. You know, that, that's what editors and reviewers do. They find threats to yes. validity. And when a paper is accepted, the... You know, I, I'm a longtime editor of two major journals. The first question we ask is, uh, uh, you know, is the paper valid? Are the methods valid? Are the inferences that are made valid? And have they handled threats to validity, of which there's always threats to validity? 
And then the second question that I always ask is, are the conclusions supported by the data? It's very important, are the conclusions. Yes. Well, one of the things we've seen in the literature is a violation of both uh, threats to validity and to that conclusion supported by the data. An example would be, uh, there are thousands upon thousands of vaccine uh, studies now uh, where it's non-randomized data. It's simply those who took a vaccine and those who didn't. And uh, there, there's in, inadequate control for uh, confounders, you know, what, what would cause somebody to take a vaccine and and uh, especially for outcomes like hospitalization and death. So there's no control over, in many cases, whether or not they had prior COVID. Did they have any prior immunity? That's ignored. Early treatments ignored. These important confounders are ignored. And so, you know, I would contend that many of these papers aren't valid. They simply don't have confounder control. And then in, in the end, the conclusions are, are something that many times is are, are not supportable. They, they'll conclude, well, this supports a continued mass vaccination. Or even worse, there'll be papers on safety and they'll describe uh, fatal cases of myocarditis, for instance. And then in the end, they'll say, conclusion, this supports yeah. continued vaccination. <laughs> so I've seen that as well. And it, it is troubling, but it's almost like you have to dig into the into the paper to find the result, which which the conclusions don't, you know, don't really reveal. So you can't just skim the conclusions and get the story of the paper because it's it doesn't really reflect it. That that's that's I think that's the key point. And I'm finding more and more I have to go to the supplemental tables to actually get uh, what what really the nuggets of the paper are. Well, we've been talking to Mark Skidmore, a professor of economics at Michigan State University, has a wonderful paper in BMC infectious diseases, which has actually been tweeted out to millions of people since its release. Mark, do you have any final words for our audience? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I've thought a lot about how to have conversations with people about these issues. And as it turns out, it, it it's a challenge. So, you know, I guess my take on it is, um, you know, for, for many people, this is a really scary thing. You know, they've taken the vaccine maybe they've seen loved ones who've been harmed but they thought well maybe they're just unlucky but as more and more data come out and you realize that this is not uh you know just an unlucky event for them but it's happening more broadly that's really troubling and then if if a person is willing to go there and they take it the next step and say well why isn't the CDC and the FDA stopping and putting a halt to this and then that gets really scary because your faith in your institutions are at stake. And that's sort of like having the stool knocked out from underneath you. And I think that's part of the reason that we're, um, you know, it's a challenge to get people to see what's happening here. Okay, terrific. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.